This week, Biden's first 100 days. He's showing that he is, in fact, the most experienced person to come into the presidency, maybe in American history, certainly in the past 100 years. Cross-strait relations. That is seeking to be on good terms with both the US and China. And biosecurity in Australia's north. If we have trust and transparency and good sharing of information, then we can build scalable systems. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. April 28 marked US President Joe Biden's first 100 days in office, a symbolic milestone used to measure the impact of a new administration. Peter Jennings is joined by Bruce Wolpe, Senior Fellow from the United States Study Centre. They discuss President Biden's achievements so far in areas such as COVID and climate, and the domestic and foreign policy challenges the administration still needs to manage. I'm talking with Bruce Wolpe, Senior Fellow from the United States Studies Centre. Welcome to Canberra, Bruce. Thanks for having me in. It's great to be back. Well, we're here talking about the first 100 days of the Biden administration, and uh, that's come and gone in a flash. What, what's your overall assessment of how the president's going 100 days in? Uh, he's doing well. Uh, he's showing that he is, in fact, the most experienced person to come into the presidency, maybe in American history, certainly in the past 100 years. And he's bringing all that experience to bear over three decades in the Senate vice president for eight years. He knows how the joint works. He knows what it looks like. People have been impressed with his appointments. The cabinet is solid. Uh, it, and, his, and his senior staff has had previous experience in other administrations. They bring a lot of wisdom and expertise. And the other thing is they've learned. Obama was not the perfect president. Mm. Uh, you've done a lot of writing on this. Mm. But they, they know it's not, this isn't Obama two. This is Biden one. And he's, uh, he's ready to go. It also, his cabinet, it looks like America. It's the most diverse cabinet in history. More women, more, more people of color, uh, gay and transgender people, Asian Americans, all kinds. And they are out there. And they, they got confirmed. And he has been, he learned a lot of lessons from uh, what happened with Obama. And he's very decisive. He goes big, he goes fast, he goes early. And he wants to make a difference because he knows the urgency is there. These are all um, immensely important political attributes that you describe. If you had to highlight just one or two uh, signal achievements from the first 100 days, what would they be? He campaigned on two things, most importantly, ending the pandemic and restoring the economy. And he asked for $1.9 trillion. I don't know how many shekels that is, Peter, but it's a lot. It's a lot of money. And he asked for $1.9 trillion and he got $1.9 trillion and it's out. And you can see, particularly here in Australia, where we're sort of struggling with the vaccine program, you can see the effects. Americans are getting vaccinated, 200 million shots delivered. And by the end of the northern summer, most of the country will be protected. And the economy looks like it's going to be roaring back. And he's built the economic stimulus on jobs, the middle class, and um, protecting families with children and their income. And, And it's been popular politically. And then he has an infrastructure program pending. We'll hear in the president's speech about the American Families Program, education, health, and some other issues. Would you point to any areas of disappointment where you think the president hasn't delivered so yes, successfully? Yes, immigration and the southern border. Uh, there is a crisis on the southern border, and he's getting hit for it. And they just have not gotten on top of it. I think they know what they want to do, but they haven't implemented it right. And, so, and that gives an opening to the Republicans who find, his, so again, the support for his economic programs pretty strong, even among some Republican voters. But on immigration, he's vulnerable on, as they push those cultural issues, and uh, they're exploiting it to Biden's disadvantage. 
Now, you describe this as um, Biden one, not not Obama two. But I, I was struck, I must say, at the, at the beginning of his um, administration that there were so many folk from the Obama team that were brought in. Can a machine be too well-oiled, do you think? I mean, is, is, is there a risk of that just becoming too much of a default back to four years earlier? I, I think the issue is, remains to be seen, but I think the issue is, will we see that they've learned from what happened? In other words, if there is an Iran deal, for example, is it going to be the same as, what, are they just going to go back yep. to what Obama, and I think they know better, and I think they know it has to deal with Iranian terrorism and pushing uh, destabilization in the Middle East and other places on climate change. It's not going to be a carbon price, which has been the third rail of American and Australian politics. Mm. You touch it and you die. Mm. Uh, it's going to be more on regulatory and incentives to business to clean up, more on technology. So in that sense, they're kind of aligned with Australia, but the targets are much more aggressive under Biden. So, no, I think they've learned quite a bit, and I think we will see something really different and something that actually works faster. Yes. And how about the performance of Vice President Harris? I mean, uh, vice presidency is often described as, as a non-job, really. Um, how, how do you think she's taken to that role, and, and what is she trying to shape it into being? What Biden wanted when he chose a vice president was someone who could step in as president if, if catastrophe struck, and secondly, someone who, with whom he could form what he had with Obama, which is a true partnership. We lost someone great a couple of weeks ago, Walter Mondale, vice president under Jimmy Carter, and he had that kind of agreement with Carter. I will be at your side, but I want to be, I'm not co-president, mm. but I want to be a partner. And every, president, every vice president since Mondale has assumed that mantle. Dick Cheney, absolutely, and Biden, and uh, Al Gore. And so they really, and H.W. Bush under Reagan, so they really uh, did it. Harris, if you notice, she's present in every meeting. She's the last person in the room. She was the last person in the room on Afghanistan a couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago. She is with him on all decisions. She's with him on all appointments. She obviously has a lot to learn as someone coming in just from the Senate to the vice presidency. The more time she is there, the better she will be. Biden has not sidelined her with a portfolio. Here's Guatemala. You deal with that. Here's space. You deal with that. Right. So I think we'll see more. And she's clearly absorbing, growing but Biden trusts her, and that's the most important thing. That's an interesting comment. Now, uh, clearly the most important bilateral relationship that the U.S. has to deal with is China. Yes. How is Beijing reading Joe Biden? Uh, what was interesting to me is they were uh, responded so positively on the climate call, mm. and Kerry went there, which was really interesting as well. So my question is, why did China do that? Why were they suddenly nice on climate? Obviously, they want to get out from the Trump sanctions and trade war. But obviously that the issues between the two countries are enormous. And I think I like to call it a new realism. So when you have Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, meeting with their Chinese counterparts in Alaska, I'm struck by how directly they talk to the Chinese about – they certainly got a spray from China at the opening round, right? But how they pushed back and said, we are concerned about things that were never top of the agenda in other meetings. We're concerned about the Uyghurs. We're concerned about Hong Kong. And you really should not touch Taiwan. And there will be consequences, and we're watch, You know, we're there. So I think we have American values. We're going to project them. We'll see how you respond to them, but you can't push us. And so I'm kind of encouraged by where it started. Where it ends, that's the big question, yes. isn't it? I, I was 
still uh, incredibly struck Bruce in the Alaska meeting with um, Secretary Blinken's reference to Australia and re- really saying to China, well, you're not going to have a better relationship with us if you keep treating Australia in the way that yeah. you are. I mean, this, I thought, was a, a almost a defining moment in our bilateral relationship with the I, United States. I agree, States. and it goes also with the resurrection of the the elevation of the Quad to the leader's letter yes. uh, level, which had not happened before. And it's Kurt Campbell with his statement, we're not going to leave Australia on the battlefield, you know, alone. And I think, it's a, a, it's a signal to China, but it's also something deeper that Biden has said. He wants to rebuild America as a leader of an alliance of like-minded, aligned countries from NATO through to Asia. And, and he's doing that. He also thinks if he's facing China, he'd rather do it with um, a dozen allies from the West than just mano a mano, mm-hmm. Trump versus Xi, U.S.-China trade war, and get better results. Now, we, we have not yet had the, the, the big international crisis that uh, sometimes Don't has worry, been used <laughs> you know, to test a new president. And, and I've written myself about would, would Biden face something like that. I agree with you. It does look like it's coming. Uh, the Russians on uh, the Crimea border, the Chinese around Taiwan. What's Biden going to be like as a commander-in-chief? Oh, I think he's going to be – let's not forget, he was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee for a long time. He knows most of these leaders. He knows Putin. You know, he knows Xi. He knows uh, – he goes back on Middle East issues with every leader in Afghanistan and, uh, and Iraq, every leader in Israel and so forth. He's dealt with them. So I think he has, again, this new realism, clear image of the United States and what it wants to achieve. So I'm kind of encouraged about where he is. And I – He's not, I think he feels pretty confident in dealing with, it. What, what does he do? He gets on the phone with Putin. He says, uh, let's have a summit. We have some differences. Let's have a summit. And that's fine. That's on a Tuesday. On Thursday, he slaps sanctions on him. Mm. And then Putin, in the past few days, he is pulled back from the Ukraine mm-hmm. and Navalny suddenly can eat again. Now, is that, um, did they blink? I don't know. But they, they got off of the confrontational course they were on in this little tete-a-tete that they were having. Maybe that's an encouraging sign. Bruce, I thought the one uh, flat note that I did not like uh, so far in Biden's 100 days was the decision to remove the no, troops from Afghanistan. You wrote very compellingly about that. And, you know, it does feel to me that Biden was getting a bit of emotional baggage out of his system from that 2008 visit when he concluded, rightly enough, that um, Afghanistan is not going to be turned into a, a Scandinavian-style democracy. But what, what was your read of his decision there? Uh, my reading was that he tapped into a vein that Trump really tapped into when, he, when Trump said, I want to end the endless wars in the Middle East. That was popular. So this decision, regardless of the merits, it was popular. I think Biden concluded that the costs of staying in and with the mission would not worth the benefits. When Trump negotiated the deal, I really thought it was like uh, it's South Vietnam all over again. Mm-hmm. And that, so what was the timeline? You leave, and two years after that, Hanoi takes over the South. So, we, so America will leave, and the West will leave, Australia will leave, and two years from now will the Taliban control Afghanistan. So then the question is, well, if you look at Vietnam and the United States today, they're really <laughs> they're getting along fine. It's hard to imagine the Taliban having that kind of relationship. So then the question is, are they still a threat for why America went into Afghanistan? And if they are a threat, can it be handled? Now, was the Iraq war necessary, or could we do bombing every month of Saddam and keep his forces at bay? And that's the box that you keep him in. Can you keep Afghanistan in a box, or do you have to be on the ground to accomplish the goals, the objectives that you write about? 
that's a big unanswered question. But short-term political, absolute winner. Do you think there's a risk, though, that you know Taiwan could look at that decision and conclude to themselves that, um, well, you know, America can't be relied on to come to our defence? It is possible. But again, I think they are getting a lot of direct signals that the U.S. is there for them. And, and that has been absolutely clear, too, in what Biden and team have said to China. Let's um, close quickly for a couple of minutes on American domestic issues. Um, Trump's had his 100 days too, lost a bit of weight, played a lot of golf, it would seem. Uh, Bruce. People wish him a good handicap. <laughs> and, uh, what, what's, the, what's the Republican strategy leading up to the midterms? Uh, it's not dealing with Biden and getting his program through. Yeah. It's stopping it cold. And they, if you just look at the numbers and history... Margin of six Democratic seats in the House, 50-50 tied Senate. I think the Senate will stay Democratic just given the states that are up next year. But the House, if you look at history, two dozen seats are lost by the party in the White House. So my sense is right now, even with the best efforts, that uh, the House will revert to Republican control next year. That can be changed in a couple of ways. One, if they pass Biden's agenda and it works and it reaches some Trump voters and they want to reward the Democrats for doing that, fine. Trump wants to dominate, and still is the biggest player in the Republican Party. And he wants to control the outcome of the Republicans next year. So he wants Trump candidates running, and he's going to fund them. And if they can win and take control of the House, then Trump is the kingmaker of the Congress, and therefore shouldn't Trump be the kingmaker in 2024. Mm. The Democrats think if Trump does that, and they are able to hold against history and so forth, because of the extremism of Trump, fine, they can beat extremists any day of the week. So that's what the contest next year is going to be about. Uh, Bruce, we should talk about climate because that, that's something that has been uh, speculated in some areas could be a problem in, in the Australia-US relationship. How do you read the, the climate issue? I think those here who uh, leap to a conclusion that it means real estrangement problems for the prime minister with the president, that's mistaken. Uh, no, nothing the prime minister can say, however, will slow... Uh, Joe Biden or John Kerry down by a nanosecond as to where they're going. So the question is, how does Australia deal with where the U.S. and, and many in the, else in the world are going? But the, the relationship is too strong, too enduring, too deep. Joe Biden is not the kind of person who would go after such an ally in any personal way or, to embarrass them or undercut them or anything like that. He'll say, you're my friend. You know where I'm going. I trust you to figure it out with the Australian people. You have a great democracy and you'll work it. Well, we're talking America here, but just briefly on Australia, do you, do you think Morrison will do enough to sort of stay in Biden's good books on climate then? Uh, frankly, no. Uh, and, and not so much of Biden, but because of Kerry. And Biden trusts Kerry and Kerry has carriage. Yes. And John Kerry is a warrior yeah. and he's not going to yield. And let's end by talking about Biden management. I mean, he, he is the age he is. He does stumble over his words sometimes, and, and he's very carefully managing his press appearances. How does that sort of wider Democratic team manage a president of, of that age to extract the best from him, but also keep him going? I, I think I guess. he manages them. Uh, he is, the stumbling of words actually is his stutter from childhood. And so you have to kind of look at it. He's, he's, controlling, it. he's controlling his stutter when people think he slips on words. Um, I think he is very clear about what he wants. I think he t takes his time to make decisions, but he's not afraid to make them. And the loyalty, there's been no leaks from the inside the White House about, you know, I went into the president with this and he overruled me, but he's wrong. Mm. That happened within hours in the Trump White House. 
It doesn't happen. The press secretary, she gives briefings every day and she doesn't lie from the podium. The FBI is not, is not interrogating the White House staff. No one's been fired by tweet. So I think, <laughs> I think people see him as he, he's in his own element. He knows the place. Yes. And he's doing his job. It, it's interesting after four years of Trump just watching the system work and being slightly surprised to see that. Have right? you it's noticed a... that the blood pressure around the world has dropped? <laughs> I think it's about 110 over 70 right now. And I think people feel pretty good about that. Bruce, it's been a fantastic conversation. We could keep going for a long time. Good but for I think 45 minutes. We'll, we, we probably need to cut it short here. But thanks for coming to Thank talk you, to Peter. us. Recently, Taiwan has been receiving increased international attention due in part to its pandemic response but also because of cross-strait tensions. Aspie research intern Elena Yuching-ho speaks to Wen Ti-sung, lecturer in the Taiwan Studies Program at the Australian National University. They discuss cross-strait relations, the potential for military conflict, and whether the status quo is still sustainable. Hi, Wendy. Thanks for joining me in SB Podcast. So I guess the first question I would like to ask is, we have seen Taiwan become a heated topic around the world as tensions between the US and China rise. And Taiwan has also gained a lot of international praise for their success in controlling COVID-19. Are there other factors which also contributed to a changing perception of Taiwan's international status? Uh, I think the point you mentioned are uh, obviously very important. Uh, Taiwan setting example internationally in terms of COVID management and prevention, and you see that reflected in American Secretary of State Tony Blinken's speeches, as well in terms of the great potential contribution Taiwan can make in terms of public, uh, international public health. In another way, uh, Taiwan is, of course, one of the more um, interesting success stories in terms of how modernization has led to economic development, rising middle class, and then gradually liberalization and democratization. And it's in that sense that Taiwan being uh, the foremost liberal democracy in the Chinese-speaking world and Asia, more broadly speaking, points to an alternative future for the Chinese-speaking people, including the PRC. So it's in that sense that serving as be a soft power amplifier or as an alternative model for, for authoritarian polities uh, in China and elsewhere. That uh, makes Taiwan an interesting uh, factor to consider internationally. So I think today we have seen the hashtag Taiwan can help being viral on Twitter today. What do you think that when, while Taiwan has been trying to engage with international affairs, for example, like joining UN or WHO, China seems to be the main obstacle. But other than China's diplomatic efforts, what are some of the other obstacles in Taiwan gaining international recognition? For example, like how my domestic politics undermine Taiwan's ability to respond to ulterior threats? Right. Uh, I mean, that's certainly an interesting question. Um, I think on the domestic side, I guess two points come to mind. First point is the simple good old butter versus guns debate uh, you see in democracies around the world, of course. There is, uh, it's time, uh, whichever party is in power in Taiwan, you often see the other party, the opposition party, try to play a more, a double more populist platform in terms of deprioritizing defense expenditures uh, in favor of perhaps more uh, everyday uh, social welfare kind of spending, domestic priorities, uh, what have you. So it's uh, partly as a result, there's always been some opposition to greater arms sales with the U.S. and other countries. And there's also a 
a relatively low uh, level enthusiasm for, let's say, the national service. So uh, it's a practice that got uh, gradually phased out over the years in practice. Uh, so that's number one, uh, domestic priorities taking center stage. Number two will be more division in terms of grand strategic preferences. Obviously, we know Taiwan has two main political camps, the DPP, that's in power, and the KMT, that's in opposition. Generally speaking, you see the ruling party, the DPP, adopting a more uh, relative assertive Taiwanese national stance, which has some um, coincided with great attention uh, with Beijing as a result. And then you see uh, the DPP often try to develop greater cooperation and strategic alignment with the U.S. side, with the Western countries, more broadly speaking. And you also have the KMT, the opposition party, taking a different stance. They tend to argue for more of a strategic opportunist approach, for example, where they think Taiwan's position in this U.S.-China-Taiwan triangle should be one of the pivot uh, strategy, so to speak. That is seeking to be on good terms with both the U.S. and China, which then will entail a strategy of uh, lower defense spending, perhaps, and often trying to do things that will not overly antagonize Beijing. So perhaps too active a pursuit of international space, for example, uh, may lead to Beijing's suspicion about Taiwan's de uh, jure independence uh, ambitions and led to further tensions. So oftentimes we see KMT, the opposition party, taking a relatively more low-key approach in terms of expanding international space, uh, especially in organizations where uh, uh, statehood is a requirement for membership. So besides oppressing Taiwan in international arena, it seems that China's cultural influence has made great impact on Taiwanese people. Last year, Taiwan's Ministry of Economic Affairs amended regulations indirectly blocking two Chinese streaming services, ITE and Tengxun. We are witnessing many high school students in Taiwan using social media platforms like Douyin, China's version of TikTok, and also starting to use simplified Chinese using mainland China rather than traditional characters. Do you think this shows a cultural dimension to China's gray zone activities in Taiwan? To some extent, yes. I mean, we know about the so-called three magic uh, weapons of of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Mao Zedong said it's the bearer of a gun, of course, and then bearer of a pen, i.e. propaganda. And then finally, you know, the front strategies or more soft power oriented, broadly speaking, or sharp power oriented pursuits. So I guess in that sense, China has really been upping its rhetorical in the front as well as propaganda game vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan. So, for example, we see the CGTN, China Global TV Network, for example, uh, recently upgraded and created this new thing called Voice of the Taiwan Strait, Taihai Zhishen, as well as uh, this is like a radio platform. Um, and then you also create more new media platforms on social media, such as Kan Taihai, Taiwan Strait Observer. Uh, these are new attempts to, I guess, infiltrate maybe a, a very negative word, so let's say ways to... Um, uh, penetrate into the daily news media diet of Taiwanese society, especially younger, more tech-savvy, more social media-oriented crowds in Taiwan. Hopefully over time, I'll imagine they are looking at conditioning Taiwanese uh, electorate in ways that will be more favorable to China's political preference, perhaps get them more used to thinking along uh, PCC preferred lingo, for example, in the process, help legitimate a number of other 
I guess, outreaches towards Taiwan and shaping the electorate in Taiwan in a way that's Beijing friendly. Yep. So after talking about China's soft power, I want to move to traditional security issues. In a BBC interview, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen has mentioned that Taiwan cannot exclude the possibility of a war at any time. Hypothetically, if a military conflict did break out between Taiwan and China, how confident are you with Taiwan's armed forces? How long do you think they could resist without the assistance of allies? I mean, we always like to have confidence in Taiwan's defenses, of course. And I think um, Taiwan has made significant efforts in terms of upgrading their defense capacities uh, over the years, both qualitatively and in terms of, I suppose, typologically, in terms of different kinds of defense strategies they're putting up. So... Uh, we see significant round of new arms sales from the U.S., the purchase of F-16Vs, for example. We also see Taiwan um, moving towards a more hybrid, asymmetric capability-oriented kind of defense strategy. And that new posture, uh, if you look at Taiwan's QDR, Quadrennial Defense Review, the last few, 2013, 2017, and 2021, for example, you see a, a significant evolution of the defense doctrine. They used to be talking about, okay, in Chinese, it's fan wei gu shou, you xiao he zu. Now it's fan wei gu shou, chong sheng he zu, which uh, translated into English means that in 2013, they were talking about effective deterrence. By 2017, they're talking about multi-layered deterrence, which coincide with what we've been talking about, this thing called porcupine strategy whereby Taiwan's beginning to imagine the defenses in more imaginative ways, in ways that uh, take into account both taking advantage of Taiwan's greater technological, uh, especially cyber abilities. They even talk about, for example, if you consult Ian Easton's work, um, as well as Michael Cole offers like that, they'll be talking about Taiwan's uh, natural geography and how that limits the number of um, landing spots or uh, amphibious warfare locations that, that the POA can consider, for example. And that then helps the Taiwan to focus their defense resources on places where it matters the most. So it's in that sense that um, I think Taiwan's has been serious about upgrading its defense abilities. And um, I think things are looking out on the good side. And it's for that reason that um, I think it's all the more important for Western societies and like-minded democracies to pay greater attention to the uh, to rally around Taiwan and um, to help ensure the continuation of its democracy. So I guess the last question I would like to ask is, in another scenario, if the conflict did not break out, how are increasing cross-strait tensions affecting the issue of independence? Is the status quo sustainable? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good question and a big question too. I mean, how do you define status quo to, to start with, right? Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you look at the typical polls from uh, NCCU, National Chenqi University Electoral Study Center, as well as from Taiwan's Mainland Affairs Council, they basically do longitudinal polls. They trace public opinion changes over the years, both in terms of Taiwan's uh, national identity, as well as Taiwan's people's policy preference when it comes to uh, pursuing education versus pursuing independence? And if so, what kind of independence? What we generally see uh, pattern-wise is that um, higher cross-strait tension tend to coincide with um, uptick in preference away from unification. And cross-strait tension also coincide with greater national ID, that is, 
uh, more attention equals uh, more people self-identifying themselves as Taiwanese national only rather than say Chinese or both Chinese and Taiwanese. Uh, however, um, so that tells you something about cross-strait tension. These tend to be a positive in terms of Taiwanese society's cohesion and morale when it comes to defending itself vis-a-vis uh, -vis potential Chinese aggression. However, uh, for Western uh, allies and partners, uh, one thing that may be potentially reassuring from alliance management perspective is that greater cross-strait tension hasn't really uh, coincided with greater Taiwanese society support for de jure independence. And we see that in the numbers, uh, Taiwanese electorate tend to be, relatively speaking, pragmatic as well. So if we look at independence in terms of, number one, de jure independence, and number two, uh, de facto independence, which is more or less what it has right now, uh, we see the combination of these two numbers go up over time. However, the preference for de jure independence still usually stays somewhere around 30% or so, give or take, or actually sometimes even less, maybe in the 20s even. Even though if you put the two numbers together, you see total preference for the jury and de facto independent to be around 80% or so. So cross-strait tension in some um, equals higher Taiwanese national identity, which means higher defense morale. Also equals greater preference for de facto plus the jury independence in general, which is more or less a status quo, but not necessarily lead to greater Taiwanese eventualism in terms of greater support for de jure independence. So that's generally the picture we're working with. Okay, thank you so much, Wendy, for chatting with me. Thanks, Elena. Thanks, Aspie. Um, my pleasure. Finally, Dr. Tegan Westendorf speaks to Professor Ruth Wallace, Dean of the College of Indigenous Futures, Arts and Society, and Director of the Northern Institute at Charles Darwin University. They discuss Australia's evolving biosecurity challenges and the opportunities for community in Australia's north to play a significant role in understanding and responding to biosecurity threats. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ruth. I'm really excited to talk to you about your thoughts on the evolving biosecurity challenges that Australia faces and really focus on the opportunities for community in the Northern Territory and perhaps also Northern Queensland to lead that response. How are you doing? Oh, great. It's a lovely day and uh, it's lovely to see you. And I'm saying hello from Larrakia land today. Wonderful. So, Maybe I'll kick off with um, first that I'm saying hello from Ngunnawal country today. And are there opportunities for community in the Northern Territory and Northern Queensland to either lead or have a really crucial role in the response to biosecurity threats? And I'm thinking perhaps in terms of how can the established ACO infrastructure be leveraged or be involved in that? Oh, look, great question. When we were first asked to work in the biosecurity space, this is exactly who we thought of too, is there are so many people who living on their country, they're recognised as the custodians of that land, they know that country better than anybody and have for millennia, who better to identify when there's a biosecurity threat that exists on that country, has arrived in that mm. country and knows the history of when it arrived and what has happened. It's also really important because it's an economic development opportunity for people in remote communities. So many people are already out there taking care of their country and they want to take care of the biosecurity threats that may be coming from overseas or across borders. 
And this is an opportunity to turn that into economic work that is benefit for the community, but also for individuals. The other thing that's really important about that work is it benefits the whole country because you think where a lot of Aboriginal people live and are taking care of country that's very remote, has sparsely populated, who's living out on that country and walking that country every day? Aboriginal people. So who's going to see that threat first? Aboriginal people. And who's then, and Torres Strait Islanders, and who can then help protect the whole country by handing on that information and doing something about it? Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. My apologies, in the Territory we tend to talk about Aboriginal people, but I, of course, acknowledge the amazing work that Torres Strait Islanders have done in leading change in biosecurity management for a long time. Of course, absolutely. Could you perhaps give us some sort of practical examples of what those initiatives or what that change has been? I'm really keen to understand what that looks like in practice. So people are out on country doing amazing work already. That might be through the federal program working on country. It might be through learning on country for rangers and kids in schools. Uh, they might be doing CDPs, so work for the doll schemes out on country. They're also out doing their cultural activities and cultural work, uh, mm-hmm. working out on country, visiting different places, uh, doing things that are involving health or education that mean that mm-hmm. people are travelling around those areas. And in that work, there is important recognition that is going on all the time of the changes that are happening. What's a new bug that's turned up? What's a new plant? What's a new animal? How has something Mm -hmm. changed because the winds changed or the time of year, the temperature changed? Who's going to see that first? Those people who are out doing that work all the time. And what we found talking to those people that was quite interesting is that there were contracts for that work that the Commonwealth and local governments and state and territory governments were commissioning people to, t- to do the weeds management, to be going and identifying rubber plant and cutting it down, to be out poisoning things that were a problem, to be digging stuff up that's a problem and to be reporting and identifying new threats. And that if we planned that well, those people could actually build businesses at scale if there was a more planned approach to who was doing that work, giving them time to develop the infrastructure, the training, the knowledge uh, across a team then they could take that on as part of other contracts and other businesses that they were doing. It's often quite seasonal work, so it fits quite nicely into uh, the different sorts of work that people might be doing over the years. So whether you're fishing, whether you're out doing a tourism business or whether you're out um, doing ranger work, you could be identifying those issues, doing something about them and reporting them back to the federal government or the local NT government here or other state governments. Absolutely. We often hear about this kind of cross-sectoral approach to to policy problems, and it sounds like you're identifying real opportunities for that. And I'm wondering, do you have a sense of any current blockers, sort of low-hanging fruit that will would enable that kind the kind of approach that you are describing? And I'm thinking, for example, um, funding, funding coming through the right channels? Is it going broadly into the ACO sector? Should it be happening in a streamlined way? Look, absolutely. I think streamlining is picking up the key issue. Place-based approaches say what is going to happen in this place and what's all the different type of work that might happen here. So instead mm-hmm. of saying, I'll take on a business and I'll cut down rubber plants for the whole of the northern Australian regions and I'll travel that whole area, It's much more about saying for the people who have responsibility and custodianship of this land in this place, what are all the different opportunities for contracts that could happen over the year 
that might involve different people, but are highly related to those people's social, economic and cultural futures, realities and responsibilities. So it means thinking a bit differently and a place-based approach can work a whole lot better. So it could be that when the rubber plant's out or when the um, gamba grass is out, that that's out what you're working on, then you might do some education work in the school uh, Mm -hmm. and be teaching young people about those issues and turning that into great classes that would be involving maths and um, language and all sorts of things. And then you might be involved in a tourism business that's getting people out on country or taking care of the parks that people are out exploring during the middle of the year in the dry season. Now, all of that can happen over a year, but it needs to be organised and planned well in advance so that people have time to work at scale, build the infrastructure, do the training and build the economic models that will go with that work. It means thinking a bit differently. And that's, I think, the major blocker is too often policy is focused on one program and one narrow element of that piece that they're responsible for rather than being the coordinating force to bring all those departments together to negotiate as a team or maybe to report in a more integrated way. Absolutely. In terms of thinking differently, that makes me wonder if perhaps there are different ways into seeing this kind of policy response. And I'm thinking, for example, there are some Scandinavian examples of really interesting um, primary and secondary school pedagogies where students take a semester where instead of taking a group of subjects, they take an event, perhaps a historical event. And I'm wondering what what could this look like Mm -hmm. if students walked into a classroom and had three months to look at biosecurity and the North and how that could incorporate an elevation of community voice, a connection to country and the systems of values that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young Australians don't get to see in our mainstream environment and how that could sort of pull policy into the kind of future that we want to see. Is this wishful thinking or is this something that you can imagine working. Absolutely this can work in the Northern Territory. We have good examples where people have flipped practice and I'm sure they happen in other places as well. What underpins that change is local decision-making policy, where we identify leaders who want to take over elements of policy locally, recognising the way that that policy is negotiated at a street level every day and empowering Mm -hmm. people to have the voice about what's going to happen. We've got a wonderful example here with uh, one of the researchers here at the university who's also an elder in her country, Kathy Gudda-Jagka, and she's developed seasonal calendars that tell the story of the seasons from the Warramiri perspective, and it says when you get this wind, this sea temperature, you'll see these plants, you'll see these animals, and this is when the change happens, this is what will it, it will look like. Mm-hmm. What the school did in the community that she's from is they then said, well, let's change the curriculum so it follows those seasons. So what's happening inside is what happens outside. And she was deeply involved in a lot of biosecurity work for a long time. So we then worked with her to develop um, Bowerbird, uh, a a version of Bowerbird. Gary Kong developed Bowerbird. But we worked with her to develop a version of Bowerbird where the community could decide what information would be identified and recorded. So it's not only an incursion, but it's also the story that goes with that and who has responsible for that place and that knowledge. So it was Mm -hmm. connected knowledge, but the connection was about the season and the place rather than the curriculum. And then it was backtracked to the curriculum. 
and students were then involved in collecting data to tell the story of their place and how it connected yeah. with culture, science, uh, and the perspectives of local uh, activities and place, as well as their uh, maths and language studies. So it changed the way the school thought and operated, which then started mm -hmm. to blend into other areas. So it's completely doable, but it is about authorising or recognising the, the authorising environment of senior Aboriginal people to say, this is the way we mm -hmm. could do it. This is the way we understand those knowledge structures. Now let's look at a negotiation about how those structures fit together rather than seeing mm -hmm. one as always dominant. That example just gives me goosebumps. I love it. What a wonderful example, because from a policy perspective, it's so hard to think about how a place-based methodology initiates change from a grassroots perspective, although that's so easy to say and very easy to agree with. It's much easier to think about policy in terms of change that you impose from the top down. So I think we have so much to learn from those examples. I'd like to ask you one last question, which is about the scalability of collaborative approaches to workforce development mm -hmm. and engagement with community, government and industry. And I know that's like asking someone to solve world poverty in 20 seconds, but I'd love to understand a bit more about that scalability. I think there's two underpinning elements that we've learned through the research that we've done. The first is that we need trust and transparency more than we need consensus. So if we're mm -hmm. going to change the ways we work, if we're going to get people to work together and solve problems together that might be immediate or scary or uh, unknown or new, then the mm -hmm. first thing we need is to develop trust. If we have trust and transparency and good sharing of information, then we can build scalable systems that say, right, let's plan for the future. We don't know what might happen here. But we have agreed as community, industry and government that we'll work together on that problem and we're good at problem solving together. We don't know what the new threat is. We've never seen that one before and we don't know what's coming. But we know that if something happened, we would tell each other, we would tell each other everything we knew at the time and we'd tell each other as we learnt more and we would tolerate that we might make some mistakes but that we would keep talking and be resilient and pursue through that. If you've got that basis, then you can build a scalable system that says, let's plan ahead. The sort of work we know is continual. Gamba grass is a great example for Northern Australia. We need to keep um, removing gamba grass. But that we are also ready because we have that relationship to add other pieces because that community has got the infrastructure of the equipment. Uh, people are trained in how to use chemicals. Uh, people have been employed into that work. There's other people who've done traineeships or some part-time work who could be brought in at, sh at short notice. That means you can then scale up quickly when there's a, a major problem like banana freckle, but it also mm -hmm. means that you can plan for the long-term problems that are continual and that we continue to have to uh, face over a long time. Thank you so much for your time today, Ruth. You've given me so much to think about. Thanks very much, Tegan. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.